Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., On Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of December 5th, 2016. On this week's show, Yahoo's Jeff Passan will join us to explain how Major League Baseball became the sport of labor peace and to talk about the possible arrival stateside of the most fascinating baseball player of his generation, Japanese hitting and pitching sensation Shohei Otani. We'll also talk about the most interesting man in the NBA, the Cleveland Cavaliers' J.R. Smith. And George Dorman will be here to discuss whether it's a scandal that the NFL is marketing itself to children. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and a friend of children, not just in America, but around the world. Hello, Uncle Stefan. I'm, I'm the world's uncle. Yeah. Good to see you, Josh. Joining us as always from New York is Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist, and the world's third cousin, mm-hmm. twice removed. I wish there was a word, uh, cousinular, like avuncular. There are no, isn't that odd? There's no ant equivalent, but there's an avuncular. There's an avuncularity to Stefan. I do have to agree with that. You'd like that if there was yeah. a cousin word. Yeah. You'd like yeah. that. Yeah. Cousins. Anti-whimsy was the theme this week. The Raiders kicker, Marquette King, getting penalized for doing a celebration dance with a penalty flag. That was kind of a quintessential NFL right yeah, there. Yeah. Or was it quintessential NFL, the guy getting uh, penalized for making a snow angel? Or 
was a quintessential NFL that Cam Newton got benched for the opening series of the Sunday night game by his coach, Ron Rivera, for not wearing a tie on the team plane? A, B, or C? All of the above. I would like to see. I love the fact that Rivera wanted him to put a tie over the turtleneck. And it was probably like a $900 cashmere turtleneck. Yeah, he's that. He, he wanted him to put a tie on over the turtleneck. Cam's not and picking Cam outfits said, off the rack at Nordstrom's. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to see Cam with the tie dancing in a snow angel. Incorporate that. Just get the trifecta <laughs> with the flag. He could use the flag as an ascot. It was perfect. So I didn't watch the Sunday night game, but just you know, having Twitter open while working on other stuff. The stories that are coming <laughs> through are. The entire like timeline is just people speculating on what the dress code violation was for Cam Newton. Was it because of the cleats that he was wearing? Oh, like now there's a reporter from North Carolina who's saying it was because of the tie. Oh, Michelle Tafoya is like, this is what like the NFL's kind of showcase game devolved into. And then Earl Thomas breaks his leg and he's talking about, oh, maybe I'll just retire at the top of my game at age 27. This is the NFL. Circa 2016. And it was a, what a great game. What a great night for football. Um, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk to Uncle Stefan. And we're going to talk uh, about whether it's a scandal that he is mar- marketing soccer to children. We're going to talk to Stefan about his youth soccer coaching, what he's learned. Award-winning coach, Stefan Fatsis. There has never been a better time to sign up for Slate Plus because we're talking about Stefan and coaching girls soccer. For Slate's 20th anniversary for a limited time, we're offering 30% off an annual membership. That's just $35 for a year of Slate Plus with bonus segments of this and other Slate podcasts every week and a lot more. So if you haven't joined Plus yet, sign up before this offer goes away at slate.com slash hangout plus. Back in 1994, when a young Josh Levine was at summer camp and desperate for news of the exploits of Mets superstar Rico Bronia, Major League Baseball stopped play on August 12th. It wouldn't resume until the following April. The World Series was canceled, depriving the 74 and 40 Montreal Expos of Pedro Martinez and Larry Walker of a chance to win a championship and sparing fans the horrors of the worst division in baseball history as the Texas Rangers led the AL West with a record of 52 and 62. The work stoppage would last for 232 days, the longest in Major League history, and only the steroidal exploits of Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire could teach Americans to trust the sport again. 21 years later, there hasn't been another work stoppage, and a new labor deal that goes through 2021 ensures that'll be the case for at least five more years. Joining us now to discuss is Yahoo's Jeff Passan, who wrote a column on the CBA last week. Hey, Jeff. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. It just makes me feel really good to know that there's labor peace in Major League Baseball. In our time. (laughs) In our time. Uh, what is the reason that uh, baseball has not has, has become the sport of labor peace? Yeah, I mean, considering the history, one would not uh, imagine baseball would have labor peace like this, but it comes down to simple dollars. Uh, Major League Baseball is making a ton of money on uh, local television deals, on sponsorships, and especially – uh, on their internet arm, Major League Baseball Advanced Media, and everybody wants a piece of the pie, and uh, I think that they realize they have a good thing and don't want to screw it up. But that's not really a convincing answer. There's a lot of money in, in football and basketball, and they seem to fight more than baseball does these days. They do, uh, but baseball learned, I think, from uh, its greed 
that uh, sometimes peace is better than the alternative. And that's what I think it comes down to. They know just how awful a labor stoppage can be, and they don't want to be that sport anymore. Uh, A lot of it also has to do with the fact that uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association is not the uh, daunting stronghold that it once was. And uh, you've got some very intelligent people inside Major League Baseball at this point who have exploited that, and I think this collective bargaining agreement uh, shows that uh, as much as anything. I also think that there's some merit to the argument that baseball has figured it out for baseball, that they've created a system that is pretty beneficial to the players. It's certainly not the exploitive nightmare that it was for a century. Um, and a lot of these, uh, the most recent labor deals, are tweaking around the edges on issues that are not of central paramount importance to the main player desire, need, which is the insur- the assurance that salaries can be as high as possible. There, There is definitely that. And let's just step back for a second, because I think this is a very important point to make. Uh, Major League Baseball salary structure is really, really screwed up in the fact that, and we're going to see it at the winter meetings here, we see it every offseason, the players who are getting paid are getting paid for what they have done as opposed to what they are doing. Mm-hmm. And if baseball really, truly wanted a representative salary structure, they would blow up the current system that they have and start paying guys uh, for, for what they are doing now as opposed to what they have done in the past. Well, it's horrible for pitchers because in order to get paid, you have to, as Jeff Passan wrote about in his book, The Arm, you have to get through this, you know, basically years of potential horrific career-ending injury. Like, you have to run through this gauntlet that a lot of guys don't make it through. Yeah, and and if you do, you get paid very handsomely. I mean, John Lester is a perfect example of that. He stayed healthy, and he got $155 million for it. And you see the free agent class of pitchers this offseason. It is the worst that I have seen and the worst that anybody in the sport uh, can remember because the – I mean, is Rich Hill really the best pitcher out there? A guy who's 36 years old, who uh, as of a year ago, or a little more than a year ago, was pitching for the Long Island Ducks? I mean, if that's the best that Major League Baseball can offer at this point, it's, it's, it's a grim offseason. And, and it's why uh, a, a guy like Shohei Otani in Japan is going to get $200 million when he posts and comes over to the U.S. at some point. Okay, a couple things, Jeff. First of all, how dare you compare pre-35-year-old Rich Hill to the current Rich Hill? We've got that 12-6 to curveball. Please do not use Rich Hill as the example of anything other than he the elixir of life. He always had the 12-6 curveball. Always had it. But the, but the way he mixes it up, the way he goes through a solid four in NL playoff games. I love Rich Hill. Uh, <laughs> so here's what I used to think, and here's what I now think. I was talking to this guy named Tim Harford who wrote The Undercover Economist and he has a book called Messy, and uh, not Lionel, but M-E-S-S-Y. And I was thinking about all the classic stuff that people talk about in terms of economic policy planning and let the markets do their thing. What we have is a system in baseball where you, you don't just have the rich teams dominating everyone else. You really have a lot more variety in the sports, really a lot more chances to succeed. Now, the ways to succeed uh, hinge upon things like 
like taking advantage of young players pretty much in servitude. But then after a while, the players do get paid. And I think if you were to construct a system that could get to a result, it wouldn't look like this. This was this weird hodgepodge of a system, but the result's pretty good. Like the Cubs won the World Series and they were able to build themselves up from nothing. And teams like the Indians that aren't big market play in the World Series and teams that are big market don't necessarily get to the World Series. And eventually players are getting paid. So it's not how I'd construct it. But it seems to be, except for a few areas, seems to be working out well. So there are a couple couple points to be made here. Number one, if you go and look at the 10 playoff teams last year, nine of them were among the top four teams in payroll, $150 million plus. Right. The Indians were the exception to the rule last year. So there, there's a sense, a, a creeping sense, a, a frightening sense, that uh, the, the competitive balance that baseball has had in the past uh, is going away. Uh, now, is that just a one-year aberration? It's a good question. But the new CBA, uh, what it does as much as anything is limit the avenues through which teams can go and build themselves. So, for example, uh, in the past, if you were rebuilding, this year's a perfect example. The San Diego Padres blew things up, and they went out and spent $40 million-plus uh, on Latin American teenagers. Now, is that a good use of money? Generally speaking, those players are very high risk, and you don't get a lot of ROI from them. But at least it, you had the opportunity to do that. The new CBA completely locks you in as far as what you can spend internationally. The most, the absolute most teams can spend is around $10 million. It's a $5.75 million cap, hard cap, on uh, the smallest markets and they can go out and trade for $4.3 million in cap space. So if, if all you can spend is $10 million, well, okay, let's go to the amateur draft. No, the amateur draft has a, it's a soft cap, but the penalties there for exceeding it are egregious, losing first-round picks, and so now you've cut off that avenue as well. All of this theoretically is funneling money toward the free agent market, but as we know, the free agent market is the most inefficient way to spend money out there. So how are these teams going to compete? They'll find ways around it because they always do, but it's not going to be easy. And I suppose part of that is what makes baseball beautiful, finding those inefficiencies and taking advantage of them before other teams do but they've made it much more difficult on the smaller markets with these restrictions. Yes, and I will say the fact that you started off with about the playoff teams is true, but as you know, I think it was last year, there was a point when there was actually a negative correlation between salary and success when the Astros, basically, whenever Oakland and Tampa Bay does really well, it explodes all the things that we think <laughs> about, the correlation between payroll and success. And, you know, in 2015, when the when the Yankees didn't make the postseason and the Red Sox didn't make the postseason, but the Pirates and the yep. Athletics did, that and the Royals did, that was a time when we could say, my God, there's no correlation. So I think we're in an okay spot for correlation, but I accede to your uh, secondary points about it's going to get worse. Okay, so let's talk about Shohei Otani, who Jeff uh, alluded to, the pitcher in Japan who could get hundreds of millions of dollars and I think is the most fascinating baseball player in the world right now. Jeff, start off by just telling uh, folks who this guy is and what he's been able to do as a player in Japan. So Shohei Otani's been uh, a a prodigy since his mid-teen years, and he actually was pretty close to signing with the Dodgers 
out of out of high school, which Japanese players simply don't do. The the way it works there is you get drafted, you go and play for your team for six, seven years, and then they put you into what's called the posting system, which is where any team out there can pay twenty million dollars to negotiate with you and pay you whatever you you want. Uh, Masahiro Tanaka got $155 million, for example, from the Yankees after being posted. Yu Darvish got $60 million from the Rangers. Uh, Otani, though, uh, is looks like, uh, news came out of Japan yesterday, that uh, he was going to be posted after this upcoming season. And he would be, I believe, the youngest player to get posted. And uh, this is a big deal, not just because He's an incredible pitcher who throws 102 miles per hour, but he was arguably the best hitter in Japan last year, too. So we are talking a... He's 22 now, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. And he could come over and be a major league hitter right now. He could be a middle-of-the-lineup guy, but everyone wants him for his arm because it is a special, unique, incredible arm. I mean, it's like... A combo. It's like Darvish if he threw five miles per hour harder. And you, Darvish, when he's been healthy, has been one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. The question with Otani is, to me, is whether a Major League team will allow him to be Otani, let him pitch and hit, or will they force him the way Major League teams tend to do into a box? You have to be one or the other. You're, you're a valuable asset. We're spending $200 million on you. We can't have you DHing or playing left field on the three days yep. between starts. What do you, do you think there's room in the major leagues way of thinking of allowing a player to do this? No, <laughs> but that's where the power of Otani will come into play here. Because if he says to a team, I will sign with you only if you allow me to DH every few days, well, if that's going to change the calculus right there. Mm-hmm. The, the, big question, the big question with him is how much does he want to do it? I don't know if you guys remember a uh, Red Sox prospect named Casey Kelly. Casey Kelly got drafted uh, in the first round, and everybody thought he was a pitcher, but he wanted to play shortstop. So the Red Sox let him play shortstop for, I think, two years, and then he realized, yeah, playing shortstop is, is a really difficult thing to do. I have a better chance at a future in the major leagues as a pitcher. And so he became a pitcher full-time. Now, if you're spending $200 million on a pitcher, do you want to run the risk of having him take a, you know, a 95-mile-per-hour fastball to the wrist? And he's a left-handed hitter and a, and a right-handed pitcher. So if, if he takes one to the front wrist and he's out for, for three months because – you might have wanted to get him some at-bats at DH. Uh, is, is that something you want to do? Uh, I've talked with a number of American League GMs about this, and all of them to a man have said, absolutely not. He's a pitcher, period, end of story. How many hitters get injured in the act of, well, I'll just throw, I mean, I don't know if you know the answer. I don't know. It seems like uh, a, a heuristic where you imagine this pitcher with his pitching arm facing the opponent and you just only think of the bad things but since he's also a great hitter i mean hitters don't off sometimes they get hit beamed i don't know if it'll ruin them more than a bruise let me put that aside break down his pitching can translate tomorrow but his hitting he had a great year but of course not that many at bats especially before this year do we think his hitting is going to translate 
I mean, he slugged well over 600 in Japan, and that was not as a full-time hitter. So I, I think the hitting could translate, and he, he'd certainly be a, a great pinch hitter off the bench. But I, if he's coming here, he's not coming here to hit. He's coming here to pitch. And I think that's what he wants to do, and I think that's what teams are going to want him to do. So, yeah, it could translate, but is it worth the risk? That's the question every team's going to ask, and I think but- the answer is going to be no. That's just such a dumb way of thinking because there are just so many different examples we can think of in life of, you know, why risk it? It's so, you know, something bad could happen. Well, if you're paying all this money for this dude, you're just going to like leave all of this value sitting on the bench because you're worried about something that might possibly happen rather than taking advantage of a thing that will actually happen, which is having him at the plate, you know, hitting uh home runs not to mention the subject of your book and what how will major league staffs treat him uh as a pitcher when he comes over here how will his routine change what will be the risks to his arm to his shoulder to his elbow and the last thing is this guy is so fucking interesting like the possibility (laughs) the possibility that this could happen just for the sport just as a sport and as like through the tokyo dome competing with like other things that people care about and are interested in like to put this guy in cold storage just seems so misguided look most americans with the retirement of poppy last year jeter a-rod cannot literally cannot name a major leaguer they do not know mike trout and they know the cubs they'll be able to name this guy you think i think so if if he does what he does he in comes america here and like <laughs> and pitches a, a shutout on one day and and two bombs on the next day they'll know who he is I, I think that's I think that's giving baseball too much credit. To be honest, I know baseball has a really tough time growing stars, but uh, just the idea that a, a Japanese player is going to come over here and become instantaneously beloved and known, uh, I think I think we're I don't know if jingoistic is the right word, but I I just think America would have trouble seeing that guy as the leading light of baseball. What if he What if he went out and won the Belmont and the Preakness? but there is the kind of like freak factor right just because nobody does this and it takes something like that to transcend a sport i mean if the guy came over and was throwing 100 miles per hour and hitting home runs the stories would be like this is babe ruth and you don't think that plays I, I don't honestly. I don't know what plays in baseball these days. I've covered this sport for 13 <laughs> years now, and I and I I don't know if anything plays anymore. I, I just think baseball's star making factory is so broken that I, I it's almost like I have a tough time seeing them building a star. Period. And I don't know if I trust baseball to do that honestly. Well, if you've been working in baseball for 13 years, it's clearly your fault. So you need to uh, <laughs> you need to get off the phone and get back to work, Jeff Passan. He is uh, the author of The Arm, which is a great book, and he writes about the CBA and Japanese hitters and pitchers for Yahoo. Jeff, thank you so much. Pleasure as always, my fellow. Thanks for having me. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. 
Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last week in the second quarter of a game against the Milwaukee Bucks, Cleveland's J.R. Smith took some time to hug and shake hands with the Bucks' Jason Terry, who was sitting on the Milwaukee bench at the time. The problem was that Smith was in the game and Milwaukee was inbounding the ball and he was supposed to be covering Tony Snell, who got a pass for a wide open dunk while Smith was busy dapping up Terry. After the game, Cavs coach Teron Liu said, we're just going to move forward. We had a discussion about it. He felt embarrassed about it. It was an embarrassing play. Before we can move forward, though, we must look backward. I'm now going to tell the story of the last five years of J.R. Smith's life and career via a curated selection of headlines from Deadspin. Here we go, starting in 2012, and then we're going to go through 2016. NBA finds J.R. Smith for tweeting picture of biggest ass ever. J.R. Smith's Chinese team says he skipped nearly every single practice. J.R. Smith's reverse alley-oop shouldn't be humanly possible. J.R. Smith reminds Chris Humphreys that Kanye West is now Kim Kardashian's sperm donor, just in case he forgot. J.R. Smith's high school yearbook quote was, get chicks or die trying. J.R. Smith remembers 9-11 with a poor choice of words. J.R. Smith fails to untie Greg Monroe's shoe. J.R. Smith, colon, I'm better now because I can't really party in Cleveland. You can tell J.R. Smith's mood by the speed of his hoverboard. J.R. Smith gets into dust-up with heckling teens. J.R. Smith breaks down when asked to describe the inspiration of his father. Barack Obama to Tyron Liu. Tell J.R. and everyone to put on a shirt. LeBron James, J.R. Smith, encourage Ohio crowd to get out the vote at Hillary Clinton rally. And finally, J.R. Smith on bizarre defensive laps. I didn't even know I was in the game. My bad. Mike Pasca, J.R. Smith, <laughs> your thoughts? J.R., I, I like the heckling teens. That is the most onion uh, headline that there is. <laughs> J.R. Smith to guy who cares about his fantasy team. Here's my J.R. Smith analysis. Basketball is a different sport than all the other ones for a few reasons. Fewer guys, personalities embraced, uh, they're more naked on the court. Two, the players have greater sway. So everything that JR has been allowed to get away with is because LeBron James says it's okay. So as I analogize J.R. Smith, the... Uh, a lot of those happened when he was with the Knicks. That's true. And then it wasn't okay. So as I think of J.R. Smith, I think about Dennis Rodman and I think about Manny Ramirez and uh, Dennis Rodman being the backward walking god of Hopi legend in uh, Phil Jackson's formulation and Manny Ramirez, Terry Francona brilliantly creating this carve out, Manny being Manny. But the thing is, both of those guys, who the team makes exceptions for, the team finds a way to function even though those guys don't have to follow the rules. Uh, These guys strain team resources, right? They don't help team cohesion. They don't necessarily blow it up. But there's a way that you have to accommodate them and that takes some resources. For instance, if four guys wanted to act like that on a team, that team couldn't function. Anyway, all of that is fine when the player is really good. Um, This year, J.R. Smith's not good. He's having a bad year. And therefore, I don't I don't do the knee-jerk thing of wondering, you know, how long can this guy 
who's a threat to discipline and cohesion exist. I do wonder, you know, how long you want to drag some guy who's like shooting at near a career low and is an eight point shooter and isn't an offense where you should get more shots than most other offense. Like how long is that worth it? Why is it worth it to the Cavs? Well, it's probably worth it to Cavs because LeBron says it's worth it to the Cavs. And as long as LeBron feels like there's some positive value in having J.R. Smith be a mild amusement or distraction, then he's going to stay there. And that's probably just this season. You guys are both like so wrong, but I'm going to let you continue. I'll continue. I mean, I think what J.R. Smith has done is transformed himself, though, from someone threatening both to team and the idea of basketball and the image of the game into something that's very unthreatening. You know, he's like, I don't know. He's, he's Kermit the frog instead of Pepe the frog. He's there's no, there's, there's nothing. Kermit was a leader. Kermit was, he's he's gonzo at best. He's a bomb thrower. He cavorts with chickens. The analogy doesn't totally hold up, but go ahead. You mentioned Dennis Rodman, Mike. And I thought the same thing. Dennis Rodman, Ron Artest, Latrell Sprewell. What do we tolerate? But then you read these, the latest batch of profiles about J.R. Smith, and he is this completely non-threatening, lovable um, guy. The misunderstanding of J.R. Smith, Charles Bethay wrote in the New Yorker last month. That was a really good month. piece. That was a really way. good piece. Devin Friedman uh, wrote a profile for GQ last December in which he took J.R. Smith to a suburban dinner party with his high school friends a bunch of 40-year-old soccer moms in suburban Cleveland. And he was completely entertaining and engaging and smart and funny. So, you know, it's a, maybe there is a misunderstanding of J.R. Smith here. All right. Here, here are my points. Number one, they just signed him to a four-year, $57 million deal. So the idea that they're just going to dump him after the season, like somebody would have to trade for that contract. Like I think he's in Cleveland and they are in the J.R. Smith business now. And just the idea that he's hanging around because he somehow pleases LeBron James is ridiculous. He that helped them win. LeBron, he I mean, helped them win the LeBron NBA James Finals last in a, year. Pleases LeBron James in a basketball sense. That LeBron feels that he is me. worth having on the team because but it's, it makes us better. It's not about LeBron James. It's that objectively he made the team better. He it's did. not just because Absolutely. LeBron thinks that he did. Like he had all of these great scoring games in the finals mm-hmm. that directly contributed to them winning the NBA championship, and right. he played great defense last year. He was like a wing defender that helped them in the playoffs against not just the Warriors, but against, you know, the Raptors and the Hawks and everybody else. And the other thing, before we get to the clips of him talking in the finals, which I think, you know, we need to listen to, is that the regular season just doesn't matter. Well, that's like, important. And, yes. and us creating this, like, kind of fiction around, oh, he's not shooting that well, and maybe, not you know, why are they tolerating this guy? True. It's like, who... <laughs> Who cares? Like, they're going to make the playoffs. They'll probably be the one or the two seed. And if he plays well in the playoffs, then that's really all that matters. And this is a guy who, over more than a decade in the NBA, has proven that he can make three-pointers at a very, very high rate and that he can get hot and that he can play defense when engaged. At important times in games. And so, of course, the Cavs are going to want to, like, keep him happy and have him around. There's no way they can win a title without J.R. Smith playing well. Right, and J.R. Smith's transgressions are not blowy. They're not, they don't blow up this team. They're not blowing up this team. And I think that's important to recognize, too. The fact that he untied someone's shoes when he was with the Knicks, you know, he says, I wasn't the first guy to untie someone's shoes at the foul line, but I'm the one that took all the heat for it. That's a reasonable point. <laughs> he said dumb stuff on <laughs> social not media. Not a reasonable point. <laughs> sure it is. Not a reasonable point. 
You can't he said be bad untying stuff the on shoes. Uh, he said bad stuff on well, social media. The shoes. Yeah. He asked a woman on Instagram if she wanted the pipe, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. et cetera. But let's listen to um, this clip from SportsCenter last year. This is during the NBA Finals. Jared just had a really good game. The Cavs tied the Warriors three games all. And you've got Lindsey Zarniak of ESPN um, talking to the kids of the various Cavs players. And this is going to be Lindsey Zarniak asking a question to J.R. Smith's daughter. And then we'll hear ESPN Scott Van Pelt and J.R. Smith respond to that question and answer. Demi, your, your father is J.R. Smith. Yes, indeed. Okay, so can I ask you real quick, what is it like for you to watch your dad get ready to play this game? because he made the championship without um, getting kicked off the team. What you say? How do you explain what it's like to hear your girl say that? <laughs> you know what? That's That right there is maturity coming, um, honestly. That right there is why I sacrifice and do what I've been doing uh, since I got to Cleveland. And uh, everything I do for, is for her, honestly. Um, right. I try to be the best role model I can be on and off the court. And uh, <laughs> but it's, it's coming you, back so fast. <laughs> but but, but you, 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 her expectation is just for you to be kicked off the team, man. Why does she have such low goals for her dad? I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I, I set bad examples early, so I'm trying to make up for those mistakes now. So that is the difference between J.R. Smith and Manny Ramirez and Dennis Rodman. He's introspective. Yep. Oh, I, right, think, I think he has uh, several delightful aspects to his personality. But the plays that we're talking about, the play, the mental lapse of hugging a dude while your team's losing instead of defending is bad. And if those pile up, they have to be weighed against. We're not disagreeing. We're talking about his contribution to the team. What you guys are putting it on is it doesn't matter the evidence that we see in the regular season. And even if we only... Treat that as evidence, as what might happen when it really matters. Uh, If that's not there, if his three-point shooting is as bad when they need it as it has been this year, and by the way, he's, you know, uh, having his worst year as a three-point shooter. He's hitting 33%. We're 15 games into the season. But other than when he was 19 for the New Orleans Hornet, he's having his worst uh, year. So if he continues that, then you say, ah, J.R. Smith, hugger, not worth J.R. Smith, uh, marksman. I would just put up his entire career as a three-point shooter, you know, as a better indicator of what's likely to happen for the rest of the season versus 15 games. And we're not even talking about the three-point shooting on some level, are we? We're talking about an athlete who, for the first decade of his career, did a lot of boneheaded stuff and has been and willing. Last week did a and last week did the boneheaded thing on the court. Um, and at least is interesting enough to recognize that and discuss it opening. I mean, he's the, the, the quotes in the New Yorker piece and the GQ piece are really enlightening. I mean, they made me much more sympathetic to J.R. Smith, the human being. I mean, this is the kind of athlete that we want to respect. Someone who thinks about what he's done, thinks about what he's doing now, recognizes where he's come and how old he is and what obligations he has to his family and his teammates and the sport. And yeah, so he goes and hugs Jason Terry on the sidelines and blows a defensive assignment. That's okay. I can overlook that. That feels more whimsical than it does career-threatening. What was the score at the ga- of the game at the time? I don't know. They were in the losing. second quarter. They were losing. Oh, oh, okay. I'm sorry. It was in the second quarter. My bad. I, I know they went on to lose mightily. So 
he wrote a post on Instagram that said, celebrate the deaths of the people in 9-11, which he explained in the New Yorker story. I was trying to say we shouldn't mourn as much. We should celebrate their legacies. And he actually, he, like the rally that uh, with Hillary Clinton that he did with LeBron, he says, like, I want to go out and support the causes that I think are important, but I'm just like worried that people will, you know, misconstrue what I, what I say or that because of my image, people won't take me seriously. Um, maybe just post fewer things on Instagram. But, you know, I think you made an, a good point or gestured at a good point, Stefan, which is that we're kind of conflating on-court stuff and off-court stuff here, which is not fair, and we should make sure to be clear on that. Um, and I want to play one last clip, and this is after they won the finals last year, before he went on his nationwide uh, tour of shirtlessness. This was in the press conference right after Game 7. I mean, my parents, my family, that's the biggest inspiration of my life. I've been, th I've been in a lot of dark spots in my life, and if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be able to get out of it. But they are who they are. They fought with me. They yelled at me. They screamed at me. They loved me. They hugged me. They cried with me. And they always stuck by my side, no matter right or wrong. And I know a lot of people don't have... I know a lot of people don't have their parents in their life, their mother or their father, but I got the best two you can ask for, I swear. How can you not root for that guy? I love J.R. Smith. In that GQ profile, he's quoted as saying, I guess if I could write my ending, it would be, even though he was a quote-unquote knucklehead, he finally got it right. Let's cut J.R. Smith some slack, shall we? I say let's cut J.R. Smith! <laughs> Agree to disagree <laughs> on SlateSports.com. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing sports stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for amazing sports stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Back in 2007, George Dorman reports in a piece published last week by the Huffington Post's Highline, the NFL hired a marketing firm called Brandissimo, one whose founders had helped produce the TV show Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends, the league's goal, according to someone who worked on the marketing project, was to get to kids as early as possible. One way it did that was creating a fantasy game specifically for young children, one that offered weekly cash prizes. These sorts of attempts to create lifelong customers are essential to the league's survival, Dorman writes, given that youth participation in football leagues is down, with polls showing that 40 to 50 percent of parents, including President Obama and Brett Favre, wouldn't let their kids play football. So what do the league's efforts to appeal to kids look like? Dorman writes that the NFL has infiltrated the school system. It has produced a football-themed animated television show that aired on Nicktoons, and it is currently executing a multidimensional plan to convince concerned moms to let their kids play. 
Joining us now to discuss is George Dorman, who wrote for Sports Illustrated for 15 years. He won a Pulitzer Prize, and he's the author of the book Play Their Hearts Out. His piece for Highline is titled Hooked for Life, Inside the NFL's Relentless Existential Big Tobacco-Style Pursuit of Your Children. Hey, George. Hey, how's it going? It's good. The Your Children really drives it home at the end. It's your. <laughs> They're going after your children. So the premise here is that if, as a society, we believe that football is dangerous for kids, that kids may shouldn't be playing it, then we need to look at how the NFL is trying to appeal to our kids. And so what are the things that you saw that you found that you think um, folks should know about or that you think maybe uh, are over the line of what you consider to be reasonable? Uh, you know, there are a couple things that sort of blew me away. The first was their use of sponsored education materials. They're called SEMS. And this is, you know, they pay a company to create these slick uh, looking, you know, lesson plans, and then they get them into schools. Um, and so, you know, you had lessons plans where, you know, one of the, the activities was let's work on, you know, a hypothesis, pick a winner of a football game and then go home and watch for three hours and see if you were right. <laughs> right. So like, and there were several. yeah, exactly. There were several like that. You know, there was, there was go home and have a kitchen table tailgate party. And while that's happening, have your parents ask you things like how many NFL teams have an animal mascot? Like these were lesson plans. Remember right? a shotgun, so, the ju only all natural juice boxes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, there were a lot of like parts of lessons plans were like pushing you to their digital properties, getting you to watch games. I mean, it was just blatant, right? So that's, that was one that really caught my attention. The fantasy game was truly unbelievable because we were talking about, they had weekly cash prizes. They had annual cash prizes. They were giving away Xboxes. And what was, you know, they called these cash prizes scholarships, right? But if you look in the fine print of their rules, scholarship was in quotes. They were just giving kids a check, you know, for winning a thousand bucks, 10,000 bucks, tickets to an NFL game, those kind of things. So they were incentivizing football. Um, and so that was the other one that there are many others that disgusted me, but that one in particular also, I think, disgusted a lot of people. So as I read as I read your article, first of all, I came into it thinking, well, of course, the NFL does what it can to promote itself and, you know, as a far reaching and thinking organization and one with tentacles in all aspects of American society tries to cultivate the next generation. And I played a mental game where I substituted NFL with long distance running, a sport that we all think is pretty good for kids. Maybe there are some excesses, but what if long distance running had all these resources and were able to you know, somehow convince gullible teachers to have lesson plans based on long distance running. <laughs> but there was stuff in there. Here's the most uh, problematic stuff. One, they were only pretending to address real concerns. In public, they address real concerns like uh, concussions. But And when they uh, do the dog and pony show that journalists are invited to, their discussions have take one tone. But then you sort of infiltrated in a journalistically ethical way, an actual discussion, uh, mother-to-mother, NFL-sponsored mother-to-mother discussion. And what we find is the information that's being given out can be called propaganda. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, I, I read a lot about these things called mom's clinics. They started in, I think, 2013, and they're hosted by NFL teams. And, you know, they invite 100 moms in, and they... They, you know, they give them swag and sometimes they feed them and they, 
and they, you know, they sell the game. They sell the game being safer. Um, but, you know, and, and the media's covered them and, you know, done a lot about, oh, look at moms going through football drills, learning about football. And I was like, well, well what, are these, what happens at these things when they're not held in Chicago in front of the media, right? So we had a, a young woman go to the mom's clinic hosted by the Falcons in Birmingham, Alabama. And what you got what, there was an you know, a, a employee of the Falcons saying things like, concussions are on the rise, at least in the media. You, know, you, <laughs> you had, you had a, a guy that was there, a former Falcons player. We had the woman went up to him after one of the sessions and said, you know, hey, what, you guys didn't talk about CTE. You know, what should I know about CTE? And he sort of downplayed it and, and said it's not as big a concern as it's made out to be. And then we had coaches making sexist remarks to the women as they went through these football drills that were so, you know, hailed by, uh, by others. So, you know, there was this sort of, sort of wink and, and they were going through and they were giving the information that they sort of tailored to this group of moms. And it happened, but it happened even in front of me. You know, I went to one of these in Chicago called the Family Football Clinic. And there, you know, you had people saying things like, oh, you know, when a mom asks, uh, you know, should, should I let my son play football? You know, they're saying things like, when should I let my son play football? You know, you had uh, Christine Golick saying, uh, oh gosh, you know, what about his friends? He wants to do what his friends are doing, right? You know, offering these these responses that, we're not really answers, but we're sort of plays on emotion. Yeah, Christine Golick, wife of Mike Golick, famous former player and talk show host now. Um, and they've been at the forefront of this movement. And I was really struck by her comments in your piece that, oh, it's not that I don't worry about injury. I would never say that. It's that I think it's all great. But what they are is sort of unwitting agents of the NFL, or maybe they're witting agents of the NFL. And and when you when when I read the the totality of your piece, George, it really to me resembles the merchants of doubt strategy that tobacco and asbestos and coal have adopted over the, the last decades. You present an activity in a way that appears benign, you try to sow doubts about the legitimacy of the complaints or about the legitimacy of the alleged problems. And what that leads to is a question of how deliberate do you believe after reporting this, that the NFL strategy is to take information that they know to be disinformation and try to foist it onto the public to develop children as consumers and players? I think it's absolutely deliberate. So you know, give you an example it's often said at these clinics that you you're more likely to get a concussion riding a bicycle than you are uh, playing football, right? So this is they took some CDC information and they they omit right. some important details about that. Number one, it's before the age of ten that that is true, and it's also only true if you include girls in the study. If it's just boys, it's football before the age of ten, and oh by the way, after the age of ten, it's football. So they don't tell you, you know, they don't tell you that, you know, there are little things that they're doing, like at these clinics and elsewhere, they rail against sports specialization, you know, the practice of, of kids playing one sport year round. They, I mean, Goodell, Roger Goodell, the commissioner talks about it. Mike Golick talks about it. Others talk about it. They pivot to it when someone asks about, say, CTE or concussions. And, and it's this incredible device because they're saying essentially, Hey, you know, I know that head trauma is a concern or concussions are concerned, but the real problem in youth sports is 
you know, overuse injuries from sports specialization. So, so it's this diversion. So th- these things are, these are very, uh, these are, these are tactics, right? Somebody worked on these, in my opinion, you know, somebody, you know, coached them on these. So I, I think it's absolutely deliberate. So I don't find anything to disagree with, with what you just said. I do have a question though, about the big tobacco analogy, which is in the subhead of your piece. And Stefan just alluded to it. I edited a story that Dan Ingber wrote for Slate, um, where he argues the NFL is not big tobacco. And it's a question, I think, of scale. Like, according to the CDC, half a million people in America die of uh, smoking-related causes every year. (laughs) And then when you talk about the cover-up, it was 400 law firms and 180,000 research papers that the tobacco industry kind of built up, created to to build this misinformation campaign. And I don't think there's any argument that the NFL's campaign is on that scale. So my concern is just that the analogy underplays how horrible the tobacco industry was and sort of makes it seem like maybe the NFL is worse than it actually is. I think it's a fair argument. I mean, no one's saying that uh, you know, for example, football is as dangerous as smoking or that the NFL is doing what they're doing on the scope of what, you know, big tobacco did. I think the point was to say, look, some of these tactics, though, you know, ring of what the of what big tobacco did. And again and again, that's what people brought up when they talked when I talked to them about what the NFL was doing. So it was, you know, people who are experts in marketing talked about it, concussion, uh, you know, experts, people who who are in that fight talked about it. Um, and I think that there, it, it's somewhat fair because some of those tactics are very similar. You know, for example, you know, we know that the NFL has put forth this idea that football is safer because of Heads Up Football, this program that they started that's supposed to teach, you know, safer tackling, te- tackling techniques. Well, you know, for years they went around and said, oh, see, it, it's, it's reduced concussions, it's reduced injuries. Well, that it turned out that wasn't true, that they were misrepresenting what the study that they had done on it said. So, I mean, that's a small piece, obviously, of what went on um, during the sort of the tobacco wars. But I do think that there is sort of a, an echo uh, when it comes to what they're doing and how they're doing it to what Big Tobacco did. Are, are they doing this to really move the needle to get youth involved or to have not all of it? Some of it clearly is with that in mind. But are they doing it just to have an answer rather than defensiveness? I mean, it seems to me that if you could have a positive answer, such as, I don't want to get in the way of my kids' dreams, that's a lot better than just doing the tap dance around concussions that they're ultimately not going to win. I mean, it's better or it's sort of worse, right? I mean, it is this this emotional manipulation where, you know, you're changing the question. You're changing the question from, mm-hmm. is football safe for my kid to, oh, do you want to crush your child's dreams? Yeah. Right? So I think in in some ways it is worse, right? But I, I do get what you're saying. And I think that they are um, absolutely, this is about two two prongs, right? The first prong is indoctrinate kids into football. That's where you, why you have a TV show. That's why you have those sponsored education materials. That's why you have a happy meal. That's why you, you, know, you have this fantasy game in a virtual world and a website and, and on and on. Right? You're just getting football on the brain of you know, kids as young as six. Literally. Um, yeah, yeah. And then the second prong is they've got to have a grassroots system. They've got to continue to have kids playing. So you know, they've done some smart things like bolster flag football, which I think is a really great 
thing, one of the few things that they've done that I think I can, anybody can totally agree with is getting behind flag football as an option. But they're also out there selling youth football as safer, right? They are. And so th- that is about keeping their grassroots system intact. Right. And, and I think the risk that they run in approaching it this way is that inevitably we are heading to a point where more school districts and more towns rise up and insurance companies rise up against youth football as being too risky and the premiums will be too high and the expenditures are too great. Patrick Ruby had a long piece on Vice last week uh, asking the question of whether high school football should be banned and, and, it, and it approaches some of the same topics yeah. that you cover in, in your story. The risk for the NFL is, is this PR fear more than anything that – you know, look, the NFL could stand up and say, we don't support football below the age of 15. And we think flag football is a great way to become accustomed to our sport and get kids playing and still enjoy the greatness of the NFL and its fantasy gambling options on a weekly basis. Could they say that? <laughs> I don't <laughs> they, think they could. They could. Um, sure, they could. They could. They could. Um, you know, they'd have difficulty with the concussion part but is it going to be worse in the long run for them to trot out all this propaganda that dances around the real issues of trauma in the sport are they heading for a bigger fall because they're taking the sort of big tobacco in small uh in in, in a smaller shape it's actually a great point because if they don't sort of get kids out of the collision business right or the collision Mm -hmm. world that they just are going to continue to get kids who get hurt continue to get moms talking about their child who died. They're going to continue to get these PR hits that you're talking about. Whereas if they rip the Band-Aid off and they say, we've decided that football is not safe for kids under the age of 15, and they just say, go to NFL flag and sign up for your local league, right? It, it, what does it, how does it really hurt them? Um, it hurts organizations like Pop Warner. It hurts organizations you know, like that, the organizations in local youth tackle organizations. Right. It hurts the youth sports industrial yes. complex. Yes, but they'll all pivot, which they're all, some of them are already doing, into running flag leagues, 8v8, passing leagues, um, those kind of things. So, you know, I, I tend to agree with you. I think they're, they're, it's sort of a, a, a short-term thinking um, to, to fight it this way, to try to manipulate parents, um, it, you know, rip the Band-Aid off and invest fully in a different kind of 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 developmental system all right two two final things number one i just want to be on the record saying i don't actually think the fantasy thing is that bad maybe maybe i'm crazy number two (laughs) i have a question i have a question actually for mike which is you know when we've had these discussions before i felt like you kind of take the side of you think football and like youth football gets a little bit of a bad rap so i'm just wondering have you actually moved um away from that no, I haven't. I think that football's a good sport to play uh, as long as, you know, I, I don't believe in the heads up tackling techniques or whatever that branded thing that uh, George wrote about. I think that's a lie. I mean, there's a lot of the NFL is engaged in a lot of propaganda and we think of the NFL as football, but it's not and it doesn't have to be. And I was right. just playing mental exercises like what about the CFL? You know what? There are there are kids. <laughs> there are kids in Canada who are attracted to football and aren't being, you know, as marketed this stuff. They just like to watch their Edmonton Eskimos do battle with the Red Blacks. And so I think think that uh, there's a few things going on. One, any sport wants to market itself. Two, if you 
strip away the fact that, you know, you think that the NFL or football itself is inherently immoral. If you, like I do, are a little ambivalent about its morality, you know, you think that there's some goodness to it, I would say that you'd want to market it as hard as you can. And a lot of this marketing is just called good marketing. You could do less effective marketing, and maybe that's also less propagandistic, but it would be less effective. But I do think there are definitely elements of this that are propagandistic and and pretty awful. And just, you know, the NFL's uh, surrogates lying to moms and people who don't have the information. So that's horrible. Uh, the last thing I would say is, George, you didn't even write about the Play 60 stuff where they're in the schools <laughs> and they're doing the fuel up to Play 60, which mm-hmm. is like a gigantically huge program where I feel sorry that for schools need uh, recommendations on the food that kids eat. And so they've allowed the NFL into all their schools, the NFL with their big sponsors of McDonald's and Frito-Lay. I was wondering if you looked at that or that would be a future area of of study. Oh, I looked into it a lot and, and, um, it was something that sort of, you know, unfortunately just got cut, um, just for space reasons, but the, the, it's a really interesting program and it's one of those that you could say, oh, you know, I could see the positives here. Um, and it's a more traditional, everybody sort of does that. Everybody has their wellness program, McDonald's, Pepsi, Domino's, you know, a lot of them are invested with the NFL in it. Um, you know, the, the NFL's used that really creatively, too. They've used it to get flag football kits into PE classes as part of Fuel Up to Play 60, which is really smart if you think about it. You know, the NBA isn't getting NBA-branded balls and jerseys into into classrooms, or Major League Baseball is not doing that. But the, but the NFL is using Fuel Up to Play 60. So, you know, I, I think I had less of a problem with that because, yeah, it's getting the, the brand in there, but it's not, you know... BS curriculum or, you know, you're paying kids money when Eli Manning throws enough touchdown passes. Right. It's not inherently bad. But to me, if you're going to have a program that emphasizes getting kids activity, is that really the best one? And also, who's like, what kind of insight is that? If kids can play outside or inside for 60 minutes, it's better than not playing. Thanks, NFL. Never thought of that one. (laughs) We we should thank the NFL for that. Let's let's end on that. Let's end on that conciliatory note. George Darman wrote his piece, Hooked for Life, for Huffington Post Highline. You can check it out on that website. George, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, thanks, guys. Now it is time for After Balls. And I mentioned earlier J.R. Smith tweeting out a photo of the one with the biggest ass ever. That woman has a name, Stefan. Her name is Tahiri. You can look at her uh, official website, Tahiri Online. That's T-A-H-I-R-Y. You can follow her on Instagram at the Real Tahiri. Mike Pesca, what is your real Tahiri? First of all, I, ha- I hate all these fake Tahiris. Uh, Sam Hinkey is the former GM of the Philadelphia 76ers basketball team, but they kept losing and he got fired. Now, it's not really as simple as that, but it kind of is as simple as that. Anyway, Hinky's a very smart guy who makes references to his intellect or at least throws out breadcrumbs that make their way into articles about Sam Hinky. References that underline Mr. Hinky's erudition. To wit, this was from the latest Sports Illustrated. Hinky is super keen on a lot of topics. This is a man who listens to books on three times speed on Audible. Because if you really want to understand something, there's no better way than to spend six hours reading a book someone spent five years researching. Density of information. He espouses a growth mindset and the ability to be a lifelong learner. Now, as a podcast listener, you have the ability to hear me on two times speed. Go ahead and try it. I'll come back. 
Not that pleasant, eh? But audiobooks do indeed offer the three times version. 20 seconds to listen to a minute of speech. Of course, audiobooks, a gist slash hang up and listen co-investigation reveals, are much slower than they need to be. For instance, you know how slow Garrison Keillor talks on the radio? Well, here he is reading poetry in an audiobook. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake, inimitable contriver, endower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon. Good Poems by Garrison Keillor. Now, you can't actually listen to that via this podcast in three times speed, because like I said, podcasts don't offer three times speed, but I will provide this service for you. Here on The Gist, we will speed the following work up to 1.5 speed, and then you can take it, plug in your double speed of our 1.5 speed, and thereby achieve three times speed. So here's Emily Dickinson. Could I stand by and see you freeze without my right of frost, death's privilege? Actually, I cannot see super keen Sam Hinkie wasting his time on the Bard of Amherst, so let's play Phil Jackson, Sacred Hoops, at 1.5 speed. The real reason the Bulls won three straight NBA championships from 1991 to 1993 is that we plugged into the power of oneness instead of the power of one man and transcended the divisive forces of the ego that have crippled far more gifted teams. Now, what you need to do is go back. You play that 1.5 sped up version in your podcast player at two times the speed that it offers, and you have achieved Sam Hinkie three times speed. It is a clunky workaround, but so was Jaheel Okafor to some degree. There are, to be warned, there are some books that this doesn't work that great on. I give you Colonel Paul G. Kelly's Learn to Be an Auctioneer. 15, 17, high 20, 22, and high 25, 27, high 30, 32, and high 35, 37, high 40. 50, 50, 47, 50, 50, 47, 50, 50, 47, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50, Stefan, what is your real Tahiri? No fake Tahiris up in here. All real all the time. Washington Post Metro columnist Petula Dvorak wrote the other day about a local youth football team, the U11 District Heights Chiefs from District Heights, Maryland, in predominantly black Prince George's County, just outside of D.C. The Chiefs won their league, and then they beat some other area teams and earned a spot in something called the American Youth Football National Championships which began over the weekend in Orlando. Now, normally I like Petula Dvorak's work. She's uh, the local paper conscience, exposing folly and hypocrisy in government and life and standing up for the less fortunate. And that's the point of the piece about the Chiefs. The team comes from, quote, mostly working class neighborhoods in the D.C. area, the nurses, construction workers, secretaries, and warehouse guys who make the nation's capital function. And now, and you know where this is going, these families have to, quote, find a way to keep paying for their kids' miracle winning streak, which could last a whole week if they win it all. Now, the key line here is have to find a way to keep paying tournament entry fees, travel, food, hotels. Quote, we have everybody scratching the bottom of their piggy banks just to make it down there, the coach of the team tells Dvorak. Now, the website of American Youth Football, the tournament organizer, is loaded with bullshit kids sports jargon, wholesome development, exemplary adult leaders, high moral standards, academic achievement. The group is really just another cog in the national youth sports industrial complex, imposing a national 
national superstructure on a sport that doesn't need one and staging for-profit mythical national championships. In doing so, organizations like American Youth Football prey on lower-income families and their children. Who doesn't want to play in the Super Bowl for kid football as Dvorak dubs the tournament? She describes the Chiefs' Krispy Kreme fundraisers and refurbished equipment and cars stuffed with coolers for the drive to Florida and its GoFundMe account. I have faith in our team, Dvorak quotes the seventh grade quarterback. And I have faith, she writes, that somehow the angels who want to help the team will find them too. Look, there are national events for children worth selling candy bars to attend, events that offer educational or cultural value, activities in which there's insufficient local competition, and there's value in working to achieve a goal like participating in a national event. And while I'm on the record being opposed to youth football, I recognize that it still plays an outsized role and can be a force for good in a lot of African-American communities. But while Dvorak does note that the $7 billion youth sports industry is increasingly biased against lower-income families like those of the Chiefs, that's not the point. Rather than rallying for the Chiefs to be able to do what richer families get suckered into doing, Dvorak could have asked a more basic question. Why do 11- and 12-year-olds need to travel 1,000 miles to play football, and why should their families get scammed into paying for it? It is a harder message to sell than let's go win a national championship, but here's what the exemplary adult leaders who favor high moral standards and academic achievement of the Chiefs and any other youth sports team can tell their players, no, you shouldn't skip a week of school to play in a sports tournament. You should never play as many as three games of football in seven or eight days. I know this trip sounds cool, but it's really just a way to get us to pay a lot of money to do something that we did and did really well right here close to home. So let's spend a lot less money and have an awesome team party to end a successful season. And one more thing, Chiefs, you're too young to play tackle football anyway. Try lacrosse or soccer or track instead. Those sports offer wholesome development too. Josh, what's your real Tahiri? So... There was a very good tweet. Can you believe it? Somebody wrote a good tweet uh, after the college football playoff committee announced the four teams. We didn't talk about it on this week's show because they kind of were as expected. Your Alabama's, Ohio State's, Clemson's, and Washington's. But uh, there was one fan base that was a little bit upset, thought that there was an injustice. There's a guy named Nick Kyle. He since deleted the tweet, but uh, he wrote, Penn State has been robbed in what I believe to be the biggest American sports tragedy of all time, shameful precedent set by committee. I don't think this was a joke. Uh, I think that he was serious, that this was the biggest American sports tragedy of all time. Now, this was, that was a little overheated. Mm-hmm. You know, we all get a little excited about various sports things. But there was a lot of commentary after uh, the playoff announcements were made just about that just struck me as being very intellectually dishonest. We were like, well, they said that conference championships mattered in 2014 when Ohio State went in, but now conference championships don't matter when, you know, Penn State gets left out. It's like, you know, there are different circumstances every year. That This is what annoys me about uh, sports columnists is just that you kind of seize on this one, this one point in a much more complicated story and you just uh, create these parallels that aren't there. It's bad sports columnist. But I think the worst is uh, about the coaching searches. So Mark May of ESPN, during halftime of the LSU-Texas A&M game on uh, Thanksgiving, 
ESPN had been putting on the bottom line, like LSU is close to a deal with Houston's Tom Herman. It could come as uh, close as Saturday. And this was while the LSU game is going on, sort of like a recapitulation of what happened last year towards the end of the year with Les Miles, that there are all these reports about him getting fired during the game. And so Mark May, he goes bananas at halftime. He says, you don't have the common courtesy, the class and decency to wait until after Thanksgiving to get the word out about your hiring Tom Herman. You couldn't wait until the end of the regular season. You couldn't wait until this weekend. You couldn't wait until tomorrow. This is a disservice to head coach Ed Orgeron. All right. So this was wrong on like eight different levels. Number one, it was pretty obvious that the agent had leaked the story to make uh, Texas realize that it needed to start bidding for Tom Herman, which it did. And then Tom Herman went to coach for Texas. For however dumb and bumbling you think the LSU administration is, do you think this was their idea that they're just going to go and like leak a story about them hiring a different coach during a game? You have to be an idiot. And then the other part that uh, is what I want to focus on is the idea that it's a disservice to head coach Ed Ogeron. So people get really angry, I think performatively angry, um, about a lot of different things. But this is the one that I think makes the least amount of sense. This idea that Texas didn't do its coaching search right mm-hmm. and that, oh, it should have fired Charlie Strong on Tuesday instead of on Thursday. Or, you know, that LSU, it should have, you know, waited for five minutes to say X about Y coach. Not on Thanksgiving. <laughs> Not on Thanksgiving. Nobody gives a shit. These are just like columns that people write. To get angry about something because you need to have a strong opinion. And I like I would be more forgiving of the story of like, you know, LeBron James, you know, is in clutch or something like this. This is just because that's like based on actual like reality and a, a fact pattern that you can have a debate about. With this, it's like a story that exists for about four minutes. Nobody actually knows if the coach is going to be good for, until like, you know, maybe two or three years down the line. And just the notion that what we should be concerned about as fans in a sport where the players don't get paid and the coaches who are getting mistreated are getting three to six million dollars a year, that we should get really up in arms about the ill treatment of a coach. Yeah. It's like the fired by phone, resigned by fax. I never understood that. Maybe people care more than I do. Just be, it's about being a man. <laughs> like people, there were lots of people here, including women, who are not men in this situation. And it makes me angry. And I'm going to write about it on my b- sports blog. All right. So don't, don't get mad at athletic directors during the, the coaching season. Except on Thanksgiving. There's a right way and a wrong way. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening.